Well, this is kind of mixed emotions this morning. It's our last message in uh, the book of Acts. Yeah, I went back and checked. We started this uh, almost 16 months ago. My first message in the book of Acts was January 2nd, 2022. We started the new year of 2022 with this new series. This will be the 48th message uh, in this uh, series. So we've come a long way, you know, in our, our journey with the early church. And uh, I thought I would kind of review something that we talked about way back at the beginning, uh, just to kind of get us in the mindset of, of what things were like during this uh, span of time that the book of Acts talks about. But, you know, in the early days of the church, believers had a, a subtle, secret way of identifying themselves with other believers. We don't think about that much today, especially here in America. There are parts of the world where the church is underground and Christians have to be very careful about identifying themselves as Christians because they face persecution and death. In fact, there are more martyrs today than at any other time in church history. But here in the West, we've been really blessed. We don't have that same type of fear. But boy, in the early days of the church, you know, that's, that's what it was like. You know, they, the church started in a, a context where there was a major shift in God's program on the earth, it went from being Israel, his primary focus, kind of in the spotlight or center stage on the earth, if you will, to the church. And of course, we know uh, that the early uh, church was mostly Jewish believers in and around Jerusalem. Of course, the unbelieving Jewish leaders in that first century rejected Christ. They crowned him with thorns. They did not believe he was the long-awaited Messiah. And so after the church was born, uh, ten days after Christ ascended, uh, you know, at the right to the right hand of the throne of God, uh, the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost, and right off the bat, you've got enemies within uh, Israel, the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees, the same ones that uh, crucified Christ, but you've also got enemies among the Roman leadership. Uh, who was worried about this new sect, this new way, and, and kind of what, what's really happening here. And, of course, it started small, but very quickly uh, became uh, global, just as Jesus commanded us to do in, in his parting words uh, of the Great Commission. But because of all of that tension and the fogginess of it all, and it, you know, things were still being fleshed out, you know, what, what role was the church going to play, and how big was it going to get, how legitimate is it, uh, Christians found themselves facing persecution, and, and they, they had to be aware of that. They wanted to make sure that people that they talked to were, in fact, believers. And so that brings up this symbol, which I'm sure you're familiar with, called the ichthus. How many of you have seen this noted symbol for Christianity? It's a fish. The Greek word that you see in the middle there is ichthus. That's the, the Greek word for fish. And I'm sure some of you know the history of this or how it came about, but it's actually an acronym, and those five letters that spell the Greek word fish actually each represent a different word. And so the first letter is Eesus, and that stands for uh, Jesus. It means Jesus. That's the Greek word for Jesus. The Greek word Christos is Christ. The Greek word Theos is God, or Theu is the possessive form here, so it's literally gods. And then Huios is the Greek word for son. Soter is the Greek word for savior. So as you can tell, it kind of makes a statement. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And each letter at the beginning of each of these words, uh, if you take them out, spells a fish. So the iota is the first letter of Jesus, a key is the first letter of Christos, a theta, and then a upsilon, and a sigma. And you take all these and you put them together and you get uh, ichthus, or fish. So this became kind of the symbol in the early church. In English, we spelled it I-C-H-T-H-U-S, pronounced ichthus in Greek. And so we have archaeological evidence and, and also ancient writings that talk about how this became their rallying cry, Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Savior. And, and they would use this symbol uh, to identify themselves as Christians. We have ancient petroglyphs that have been discovered with the symbol of the fish on it, and uh, they had to be sure that when they met someone, a stranger, before they started talking about the joy of the Lord and their relationship with the Lord, uh, that this person was in fact a fellow believer, or maybe at least make sure they weren't hostile uh, to the Christian faith, because they could be a spy, they could be a, 
uh, an antagonistic, unbelieving Jew. They could be someone that's in tight with the Roman leadership. Uh, and so they wanted to be uh, very careful. In fact, in the early days of the church, uh, unlike today, uh, you know, the church assembly on the first day of the week, what we're gathered together here to do today to worship the Lord, was essentially a Christians-only club. I mean, if you came knocking on the door in one of the upper room house churches that they had in the early days of the church, they weren't just going to welcome you and hand you a gift bag like we do here at Plum Creek Chapel because they wanted to make sure you weren't some Roman spy or someone coming in to kind of rat them out. And so what happened, as we understand it from history, is that as you would be kind of going through your day walking down a dirt road, if you came upon a stranger and you wanted to know if they were a believer before you began talking about the Lord and all that he's done for you by giving you eternal life because of what he did on the cross, you would casually draw a little line in the sand, maybe with your foot or with the walking stick or something. And if the other person was in fact a believer, they would get the signal and they would complete the fish with a line of their own and it would become a fish. And in that way, you kind of knew you were dealing with a believer. So that's what we were dealing with from our perspective 2,000 years ago. In our study of the book of Acts, we are now 27 years later. Uh, historically, the book of Acts begins with the ascension of our Lord 40 days after his resurrection on May 14th, 33 AD. And then Acts ends in chapter 28, which we're going to get to in a moment, with the apostle Paul finally arriving in Rome it's late February of 60 A.D., so nearly 27 years later. The book of Acts begins with a mission, and it ends with that mission still in progress. Luke is the inspired author of the book of Acts. He also wrote the gospel that bears his name. In fact, Luke, the gospel of Luke and Acts together uh, sort of serve as a volume one and a volume two of, of, of Luke's work. And those two books of the New Testament together uh, comprise more of the New Testament than any other single author. In fact, Luke and Acts combined are larger than all 13 of Paul's letters. So Luke is the most prolific writer in the New Testament. And if you go back to volume one, so to speak, the gospel of Luke, Luke ends with the statement of the mission. He gives Christ's great commission here. This is Jesus talking. He said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. So that's really the message of the gospel. Repentance, don't be confused by the very recent westernized meaning of that English word where people see the word repentance and they think it means stop sinning. In fact, if someone were to randomly run through the back of the door right now as I'm speaking and they were not, and they were to survive our security team who would draw down on them pretty quick, I'm pretty sure. We have them strategically sitting around the uh, audience. But if they were to come in and just out of the blue scream, repent. Most of us in this room, the first thing that pops into our mind would be, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> you know, what, what do I need to stop doing? What, have I, what behavior are they asking me to stop doing? Because we've sort of become conditioned to think that repent means stop sinning. That's not what the word means in the Bible. The word repent just means to change your thinking, to change your mind. It's a compound word, metanoia, to think again. And so, indeed, that's what Jesus' message was to the nation of Israel, right out of the chute, the first thing he proclaimed, as did John the Baptist before him at, uh, at the beginning of his Galilean ministry, was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your mind. The Jews had a lot of misconceptions by that time. You know, it had been 400 years since the last prophet had written. It had been some 2,000 years since the promise was made to Abraham of a coming kingdom. Some 1,000 years since King David had been promised a kingdom and a throne. And they had allowed themselves to really drift pretty far from the scriptures. And they had thought that good works and keeping the law were, were what was going to, you know, um, give them merit before a holy God and impress God. And so they were very good at dotting their I's and crossing their T's. And Jesus says, you need to repent. You need to change your thinking. Because I'm here to tell you, I am the king. I am the kingdom. And only by trusting in me can you have eternal life. And so... 
you know, that was, that was the message. And here we are, you know, at the beginning of Christ's, or, or, you know, at the end of Christ's earthly ministry, and he's repeating that same message that he began with, which is change your mind. And he's telling the disciples here that, that this message of a change of mind about who Christ is and the remission of sins through him and him only, forgiveness of sins, that is, uh, is what they're going to need to be preaching. So <clears throat> Luke's first volume ends with the statement of that mission. Then you go to his second volume, the book of Acts, which we've been studying, and guess what? It begins with a restatement of that same mission. Jesus on the Mount of Ascension says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Of course, Matthew's gospel has the most well-known statement of what we now call the Great Commission. <clears throat> Matthew says, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. <clears throat> baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We call that the Great Commission. It was really Jesus' marching orders. The book of Acts sort of explains how that Great Commission began to be fulfilled, and it covers a period of about 27 uh, years. Now, the Great Commission in Matthew's account is interesting because he gives us a little more detail here, Jesus does, on how uh, we are to fulfill this mission. In the Greek, he uses three participles. A participle in English, we typically identify by the ending ing, a gerund, right? That indicates, hey, that's a participle, uh, a verbal noun, so to speak. In Greek, it's very clear from the ending of the word what's a participle and what's not. <clears throat> There's only one command in the Great Commission, and it might surprise you to know it's not the word go. In English, it comes across as if the word go is the command, but the word go is actually a participle, so is baptizing, and so is teaching. So the command is to make disciples, and that's really the Great Commission, is that as we share the gospel with people, we are to also help train them up in the faith, equip the saints, and develop fully devoted followers of Christ. Uh, and you do that three ways, by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. So the mission continues today, nearly 2,000 years later, and the question on the table this morning is, how are we doing? How are we doing with this mission, right? You know, we talk a lot these days about the state of the church, uh, uh, the decline of Christianity, the apostasy in the church. And just as Paul told us in his letters to Timothy, that's, uh, you know, a sign of the times, that as the church age goes on, we're going to see a great falling away from the faith. People are going to have itching ears. They're going to be deceived by doctrines of demons. We're, we're going to see a fewer and fewer group of people constituting the remnant in the body of Christ today. I believe Plum Creek Chapel is part of that remnant. I believe we're one of the churches that, to the best of our ability, is still trying to proclaim the whole counsel of God, still handling the word correctly, still proclaiming the clear, urgent, and accurate gospel message, uh, still proclaiming the soon coming of our Lord. Uh, we're not alone, thankfully. There are churches throughout the world that also constitute the remnant. But let's be honest, by and large, the church today has gone woke. It's apostate. It's, it's abandoning the word of God. And so we talk a lot about, about that these days. I'm reminded of a famous artist that was once asked to paint a picture of a dying church. What does a dying church look like? Well, everybody expected that he's going to paint something along the lines of a, a small sort of humble congregation huddled together, mostly senior adults, you know. Uh, and they would be meeting in this dilapidated, run-down building that the paint is peeling off, the walls are cracked. That's what comes to mind when we think of a dying church. But instead, this artist painted a magnificent painting of a, of a stately, ornate edifice with gorgeous magnificent stained glass windows, an impressive pulpit in the front of the sanctuary. And there was something else, though. Near the back door of the auditorium, not unlike what we have here, was a, a wooden box. And it was a collection box. And it was labeled missions. 
and the slot through which contributions were to be placed in this portrait was, was blocked. It was covered over with dust and cobwebs, and you could barely even see the box. And that was this artist's rendering of what a dying church looks like. It's a church that has lost its mission, that has forgotten why we are here. Take your Bibles and turn to the last chapter of Acts, chapter 28. We're going to look at the last section, beginning in verse 17. And Acts begins, I mean, ends where it began. It began with a focus on Israel in Jerusalem. It began with persecution. We see that throughout the book of Acts. It began with either the acceptance or rejection of the gospel. And it began with references to the return of Christ early on. In chapter 1, the disciples wanted to know, when are you going to come back and inaugurate your kingdom? In chapter 3, we see Peter preaching that great message about how the coming of Christ is going to be the consolation of Israel someday. And they were still expecting the return of of Christ. Before we get to our text, let me just give you some quick historical high points, just because, you know, we're wrapping things up, and I want to make sure we keep things in historical perspective. By the way, I won't be here next Sunday, as I mentioned during the announcements. I'll be in Tulsa uh, this weekend speaking at the Mid-America Prophecy Conference, but when I get back, as is my custom after finishing a book of the Bible, I'm going to take one Sunday and just review, uh, you know, everything from the last 48 messages. I'm not going to review all 48 messages in this series, but I'm going to kind of give you a few key takeaways to kind of button up and wrap up this series. But this is our last verse-by-verse -verse section, and I want to keep it in historical context. So let's go back to the beginning of Acts, the day of Pentecost. We'll start in chapter 2. That was May 24th, 33 AD, 10 days after Christ's ascension. And then we'll skip ahead a few chapters. We know that in the intervening times, we've got Peter and John's ministry around Jerusalem. They were arrested and persecuted by the early Jewish leaders. We see uh, the church expanding, many people getting saved, and so they establish deacons in Acts chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, Stephen is martyred. Then we see the first reference to Saul, who then meets the Lord in chapter 9. We see uh, Cornelius, the first Gentile, and his family getting saved in chapter 10, and so on and so forth. But you get, let's skip ahead to, to Paul's first missionary journey. So Paul's been a believer now for 14 years. He sets out with Barnabas in uh, April of 48 AD, and he goes on his first missionary journey to southern Galatia. He experiences all kinds of persecution. At one point, he's stoned, and this is, uh, and I know this is Colorado, so let me clarify. That means people threw rocks at him. Let's just make that clear. Uh, and uh, this is Acts 13 and 14. Then in chapter 15, uh, he comes back from his first missionary journey. He writes the book of Galatians, I believe, as he's on his way to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem council that was held to kind of begin to, with the early church leaders, the believers, Peter and James and others, to decide how do we make sense of this newfound body of believers in Christ and how does it interrelate with Jewish believers and Gentile believers and so forth. Then uh, Paul and Silas set out on their second missionary journey. Now we're in Acts uh, 15 to 18, uh, and we're into the 50s A.D., April through September of 52, April 50 through September of 52. Lots happens on that journey. You know, the, Mas the famous Macedonian call, the, the, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. They're accused of turning the world upside down. You got Paul's famous message in Acts 17 at, at Mars Hill. Uh, he writes the first and second letters to Thessalonians during his uh, second missionary journey from Corinth. Then the third missionary journey uh, brings us all the way to Acts chapter 21. It takes place from the spring of 53 to May of 57. This is where Paul spends an extended amount of time at Ephesus. Lots of spiritual warfare going on there. That fascinating story of uh, the seven sons of Sceva who th thought they were all spiritually powerful and they came across a demon that just you know really tanned their hide, and they, they didn't, uh, didn't have any luck against him. And Ephesus is a fascinating city in terms of the spiritual warfare that was going on there. It's no surprise then that later when Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians from Rome, where we find him today in our text, uh, that he talks so much about spiritual warfare. I'm actually going to be addressing that at one of my messages in Tulsa this weekend. But anyway, he writes uh, 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. He writes 2 Corinthians from Macedonia. And then from Corinth, he writes his letter to the Romans uh, about three years before he finally arrives in Rome. 
then we see Paul's arrest and trial when he gets to Jerusalem, all kinds of trials and troubles there. He ends up spending two years in imprisonment in Caesarea. He appeals uh, to Caesar, and then he starts his journey to Rome, and today we come to his uh, two-year stay at the end of the book of Acts in Rome, from which he writes the, the prison epistle. So it's late February of 60 AD, so again, nearly 27 years later after the church began. And I want to talk this morning about five things that have not changed since the church began. Five things that have not changed since the church began. Let's dive into verse 17. It came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me uh, to death. So as usual, as we see throughout his pattern, Paul speaks to the Jews first. Normally, when he would arrive in a city, he would go to the synagogue, because that's where you're going to find the Jews. And he would claim the name of the Lord, encourage them to believe in Jesus, the one who died and rose again for their sins. In this case, he's under house arrest. He's in chains. He can't go to the synagogue, so he calls the leaders to come meet with them. And in his opening remarks to them, it was a short meeting, <clears throat> he emphasizes several things. First thing he says is, look, I'm innocent of doing any harm against the Jews or their customs. We've seen him say this again and again in recent weeks as we've watched him in his messages to the different Jewish and Roman leaders. He's basically saying, look, I, I keep the traditions of the Jews. I am a devout Jew myself. I just happen to believe that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah that he died and rose again for my sins, and he's the only one who can forgive sin and give eternal life. So he proclaims his innocence. Then he, he, he talks about how the Roman authorities, even in Jerusalem, thought he was innocent. They saw no cause for putting me to death. And then he continues, but when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called you all to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. So the next thing he points out is that his only recourse really was to appeal to Caesar, because the Jews were not giving him a fair shake. They refused to deal with him justly. And then this next point that he makes is pretty important. He tries to explain, look, I'm not pressing charges against you guys, you Jews. I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm simply defending myself. In other words, I didn't pick this fight. I'm just defending myself. And his primary objective there at the end, you see it highlighted in red, in calling these leaders together was, as he did so many times, especially in the latter part of the book of Acts, was to tell them about the hope of Israel. They knew about the hope of Israel. The Old Testament prophets talked about it extensively. They just were blinded and missed the fact that Jesus Christ was and is that hope of Israel. Paul firmly believed that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of Israel, the one who will return someday and actually take the throne in Jerusalem as the King of Israel and the Lord of all the nations, the hope of Israel. And the first thing that we see that has not changed since the church began is this hope of Israel. Israel was promised a king. They were promised a throne. They were promised a temple. They were promised a kingdom. And that promise still remains today. God had told David a thousand years before Christ, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Notice house, kingdom, throne, forever. I don't know if you've been to Jerusalem lately or seen any pictures. There's no kingdom there. There's no temple there. There's no throne there. Uh, Jerusalem is still under Gentile domination to this day. Now, God is preparing the way for the exciting events of the end times prophecy to be fulfilled because after World War II in 1948, May 15th, Israel was rebirthed as a nation. And that's exciting. But they're still under Gentile domination. The Jews have not returned to the land in belief yet. They won't do that until their king comes back. The first time they crown him with thorns, the next time they'll crown him as king of kings. 
And Paul was desperately, in the power of the Spirit, trying to get these unbelieving Jews to recognize that this Jesus whom they crucified is the hope of Israel. We see the Old Testament repeatedly promising unconditionally this kingdom for Israel. It'll be a global kingdom. It'll emanate from Israel, from Jerusalem, but it'll be a global uh, kingdom. Uh, the, the Ethan, uh, Ethan, the Ezraite in Psalm 89, uh, talks about this promise of a future kingdom when he says, His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Selah. This is a sort of a poetic say, way of saying what Jeremiah, the prophet, would later say uh, to the post-exilic community when he once again pointed them as they were wondering, hey, has God forsaken us? Has he forgotten us? Did God change his mind? Did God lie to begin with and this kingdom never was going to happen? Is God just playing games with us? Did he, did he change course? What's going on? And Jeremiah, the prophet, told them, in spite of the ruins all around them, in spite of the condition of the, the walls and the city and all of that and the temple, he said, look up. As long as you see a sun, the moon, stars in the heavens, you can count on this promise coming true. And the, the psalmist here says the same thing. Now someday, by the way, after the millennial phase of the kingdom, after the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the old heaven and old earth, God's going to destroy the earth and recreate it, as Peter tells us, as Revelation tells us. And at that point in the eternal state, there will be no temple because the eternal Godhead will be the temple. There will be no sun, moon, and stars because the temple will, the, the Godhead will exude light. And we won't, there'll be no night, no darkness. So, but until that time, as long as you look up at night and you see the stars or the moon, as long as you see the sun shining brightly like it is today, you can count on the fact that the hope of Israel is still coming. It will be here. Daniel the prophet talks about this 500 years before Christ. Uh, this is one of Daniel's most famous visions. And by the way, if you haven't read Daniel lately, go back and listen to the podcast I did a week ago uh, with uh, Mark Fontecchio from Return to the Word. I called it Why You Should Read Daniel Today. It's about an hour worth, worth a listen because we go through all 12 chapters of Daniel, just highlight the key aspects. But Daniel is the key to understanding Bible prophecy. And here in chapter 7, he has this famous vision of the beasts that talk about the, the kingdoms, starting with the Babylonian kingdom in Daniel's day and then moving forward all the way through, you know, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and so forth. But in this vision, he talks about the ultimate kingdom that will crush the revived Roman Empire. And listen to what he says. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. That's where that phrase comes from. Jesus picked up on it. It was his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. And he says, I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. That's Jesus. He came to the Ancient of Days. That's God the Father. And they brought him near before him. And then to him, Jesus was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom, that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. This is roughly 500 B.C. Abraham, in 2000 B.C., had been promised a kingdom. David was reiterated a thousand years before Christ, the kingdom, as we just read. 500 years later, it still hadn't come, but God is still saying it's going to come. Now, let me ask you, as you look around the world today, do you see one like the Son of Man sitting on the throne and all the kingdoms uh, under his sway and obeying him and serving him? Of course not. This is the devil's playground right now. The whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, 1 John 5, 19. But the hope of Israel is still coming. And that hope of Israel is really the hope of the whole world. Jesus himself said just a couple of days before he was betrayed and arrested and, and ended up on the cross, he said, when the Son of Man, there he is, referring back to Daniel, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then will he sit on the throne of his glory. Anybody who says Jesus is on the throne today, metaphorically ruling in our hearts, must also say, based on the very words of Jesus Christ himself that you see on the screen, that Jesus has already come back. And in fact, that's what they do say. They say all of Bible prophecy is just one big giant metaphor. 
I hope you enjoyed the second coming because it already happened. I hope you're enjoying the kingdom because it's happening now. I hope you enjoy watching Jesus on the throne because you're going to have to go to a cardiologist and cut your chest open and look inside your heart because that's where the throne is. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said he's going to come and he's going to sit on his throne. Paul, in the letter that he wrote to the Romans about three years before he arrived in Rome, where we find him today in our text, said, in answer to the question, what about Israel? Has God forsaken Israel? Or are they going to ultimately get the kingdom that was promised them? And what did he say as he summarized his answer to that question in chapters 9 through 11? At the end of chapter 11, he says, I don't desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. What is the mystery? What is the truth that's now being revealed that was previously hidden? He says, I don't want you to be wise in your own opinion, but here's the mystery. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's what Daniel talked about, that, that Israel would be under Gentile domination for a, a, an unspecified length of time. But someday in the future, Christ will come back, just like the disciples thought they were going to do, he was going to do in the first century. He will throw off the shackles not of Rome, but of the revived Roman Empire, headed by the Antichrist by then, at the Battle of Armageddon. And then and only then, as he said in Matthew 25, 31, will he take the throne and inaugurate the long-awaited kingdom. He said, right now, it's blindness to Israel. But at some point, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel, the word so there in English is a Greek word that's better translated then, then all Israel will be saved at that time when he comes back. And he actually quotes from a couple passages in Isaiah 59 and 27. The deliverer, that's Jesus, will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is a metonym there for Israel. It was Jacob's name that was changed to Israel. And then he had 12 sons. So you, you, you've seen Israel in the news lately? Any ungodly attacks and stuff happening to the Jews in Israel? Absolutely. Has ungodliness been turned away from Israel? Absolutely not. But when the deliverer comes out of Zion, it will. And this is my covenant, unconditional covenant, that I make with them when I will ultimately take away their sins. Positionally, we can be forgiven of our sins today by faith in Christ, the same way Abraham was. But sin is still a factor on this old earth. And if you don't think so, just look in the mirror, because it's a factor, right? We still can cater to the flesh. We still can quench the spirit. We don't always yield to the spirit like we should. Um, Paul says in Galatians, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. But someday, when the kingdom finally arrives, sin will no longer be an issue. So the first thing that we see has not changed since the church began is the hope of Israel. And we today still look for that hope because the hope of Israel is also the King of kings and Lord of lords that will rule in perfect peace and justice. The way Isaiah described it in Isaiah chapter 9 is that all the governments of the whole world will be on his shoulders. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait uh, for that day to happen. So the hope of Israel. Secondly, the persecution of the church has not changed since the church began. In the early days, it was Peter and John, uh, then Stephen, then James, then Paul and Barnabas, then Paul and Silas, and on and on and on. Some things never change. They responded to Paul, if we go back to our text here in Acts 28, after his opening remarks, they said, We neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think, Paul. For concerning this sect, Christianity, the way, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. Well, there you have it. 27 years into the church, the prevailing attitude is one of criticism, persecution, hatred toward Christ followers. You know, it's kind of surprising that these unbelieving Jewish leaders would be unaware of Paul's ministry, but somehow God had apparently miraculously kept these Jews from hearing about all the details about Paul. Uh, again, you know, in that day, we, we have indications that the communication lines between Jerusalem and Rome were pretty fluid. I mean, generally speaking, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem communicated with the Jewish leaders in Rome, but yet 
according to their own testimony here, they're like, look, we don't, we don't really know what all is going on here. We'd love to hear more uh, from you on this. But what we can tell you is that it's clear to us that everywhere people hate Christians. And this sect is spoken evil of. That was the prevailing attitude. And so we see from the early days of the church on uh, this indication of persecution. And it hasn't changed. In Acts chapter 8, Saul, before he met the Lord on the road to Damascus, was standing there consenting at the, the death of Stephen. And, the, and Luke tells us, the narrator here, at that time a great persecution arose against the church. And there was this diaspora as the church, as believers began to flee from Jerusalem. You know, the, the Jewish leaders there reacted to Stephen's sermon, the longest sermon in the book of Acts, and of course they stoned him. They laid their coats at the feet of Saul, who was presiding over this death, and then they, they stoned him to death. They killed him. And uh, I think the way it kind of plays out is they, at, in the moment, they realized that their emotions had kind of gotten the best of them. And you can just see them frothing at the mouth and going crazy like a pack of dogs. They were just so angry at the conviction that Stephen had, had said to them when he says, you know, you're uncircumcised of heart. Well, you want to get a devout Jew upset? Call them uncircumcised. And that, that's what they did. And so I think to cover their tracks, they then had to just ratchet it up a few notches. They weren't about to admit, you know what? We overreacted. Let's calm down. These Christians aren't that bad. Let's just take a breath. Oh, they ratcheted it up, and they started terrifying Christians everywhere. And so they fled, right? And, you know, in Acts 13 with Paul and Barnabas, uh, we see that there was a persecution against them. Uh, Paul, when he writes uh, 2 Corinthians on his third missionary journey, he tells those believers this. He says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. I was thinking about that as I was reading this this week. Has it ever stopped? Has it ever occurred to you that one of the reasons we face so much hardship and difficulty is because if we didn't, we might think we could handle life on our own. You know, when everything's going right, you know, there's plenty of money in the bank, the car starts, the dog's behaving, you know, everything's, you know, everybody's healthy you know, things are going pretty well, you might have a tendency to sort of forget the Lord. And you think, oh, I've got this. But you know what? When a trial happens and a crisis happens, it draws us to the Lord. When things are beyond our control, that's when we really have to trust the Lord. And that's what Paul's describing here. He wants to, to make sure that we, in this earthly body, you know, we can't control something. We can't control, you know, getting cancer, for example. But this is just an earthen vessel, and it's really the power of God that we want to shine through. So he says, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Later on in this same letter, he says, therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities and reproaches, in needs, in persecutions. When's the last time you thanked the Lord for your infirmities, reproaches, needs, and persecutions? in distresses for Christ's sake. Why? Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So here we are 2,000 years later, persecution of the church is still in full sway. In fact, there are more persecuted believers across the world today than at any other time in 2,000 years of church history. And by the way, if the Lord tarries his coming in God's divine plan of the ages, we don't know when the rapture is going to happen. If it doesn't happen soon, I, I guarantee you we're going to face that here on the shores of America. I was emailing with another Bible prophecy expert this week uh, who I'm quoting in my new book and just wanted to pick his brain about some things. And he firmly believes that if the Lord doesn't come back soon, we're going to face a war with China or Russia on our soil. Now, I don't know if that's true. I tend to think so. I've said the same thing myself, but I'm not claiming to have any special information. I'm just saying you look at the signs of the times and we are facing unprecedented times. Um, but when we're weak, that just means God has the opportunity to be strong. In his last letter that Paul wrote before he himself was martyred, he said to Timothy, you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. 
persecutions, afflictions that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. How many of you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus? Yeah, see, kind of hesitant to raise our hands, aren't we? Because we just read that that means we're going to suffer persecution. Persecution has not changed since the church began, and it'll reach unprecedented heights <clears throat> in the tribulation after the rapture when the dragon Satan turns his sights on Israel. Jesus talks about this in the Olivet Discourse when he says, at that time when the abomination of desolation happens, that is when the Antichrist you know, sets himself up as God in the temple, demands that the whole world worship him as God, at that point he's going to break his treaty with Israel and he's going to persecute and kill every Jew that he can find. Satan's going to concentrate his vengeance on the Israelites during that second half of the tribulation. So head for the hills, uh, Jesus said. So Jesus, none of this should really surprise us, though, because Jesus, at the end of his ministry in the upper room, he told the disciples, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master? Well, he says, let me apply that for you very directly. He had told them that during his earthly ministry. Now in the upper room, just hours before he would be betrayed and arrested, he says, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Later on in that same discussion around the table, he says, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. I often point out that in that theme verse in 1 John chapter 4 that serves as the basis for my spirit of the Antichrist books, chapter 4, verse 3, the very next verse reminds us, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So the persecution of the church has not changed. The hope of Israel has not changed. The message of the gospel hasn't changed one iota either. The message of the gospel has not changed. Let's go back to our text so when they had appointed him a day, so in other words, they met, he met with these Jewish leaders. They said, hey, we want to hear more. So they pick a day, and this time many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. So he spends a lot longer this time with more people there. And notice some were persuaded by the things that were spoken. Paul spoke about the gospel. And it's the same message that he had preached from the beginning of his ministry, the same message that he himself believed when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again to pay one's personal penalty for sin. And anyone who simply places their faith in him and him alone as the only one with the power to forgive sin and give the gift of eternal life can be saved in that instant, just as Paul was. So he's talking here about the kingdom of God. We'll say more about that in just a moment. But he's persuading them. He's explaining that Jesus is the Messiah. And Luke tells us some believed. Some were persuaded by these things. You know, Paul had written to the Romans, as I said, about three years earlier uh, during his third missionary journey. And what did he say to them in chapter 1? As much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to those of you in Rome. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul was not ashamed of the power of the gospel. Notice the power of the gospel is in the gospel, the content of the gospel. It's not in some shiny, catchy rhetoric. It's not in some well-dressed televangelist. It's not in some manipulative altar call. It's the gospel itself that has the power of salvation when you believe it. So this is a pretty simple paradigm that Paul explains later in Romans. He says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you hear the gospel, the spirit of God convicts you of your sin and your need for a savior. And then you either believe the gospel or you reject the gospel. And, you know, in Ephesians, we see a perfect example of this. Paul says to these believers, in him, Jesus, you trusted. When did they trust in him? After they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation. And only then, having believed, were they sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. That's the way it works. You hear the gospel, 
It's like a two-edged sword that pierces your heart, convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit does. Then at that point, you can either believe it or not. When you believe it, instantly you become a child of God. You pass from death to life. Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. If you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins. Some people don't. And these Jewish believers uh, didn't. Some of them, as we're going to see in a moment. Uh, in, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul addresses a group of unbelievers who he says they did not obey the gospel. That is, they didn't believe the gospel. So the gospel is powerful. It convicts, but it doesn't compel. It doesn't force you. Nobody is forced to believe any more than Adam and Eve were forced to sin. God made us in his own image, and we have free will. He warned us against the forbidden fruit. We marched right over and ate it, suffered the consequences. And now God, in his incredible mercy and grace and love, says, I'm going to get you out of your own predicament. I'm going to send my son to pay your sin debt on the cross. He died for you and for me and for the sins of the whole world. He rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And now another offer is made. First it was don't eat the fruit. Now it's if you want to be redeemed from the penalty that you brought on yourself, trust in my son and your savior. And it's a bona fide offer. Whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely. But it's not forced upon you. Forced love is no love at all. The very first letter that Paul wrote, uh, he was addressing this message of the gospel that has not changed. Early on, Satan started attacking it. He wanted to change it. He wanted to twist it, distort it. And many of the new believers that Paul had just evangelized on his trip there with Barnabas had begun to be confused. And he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all is essentially what he's saying here. But these people are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. That word pervert there in Greek, it's the word metastrepho. It means to twist on its head, to turn 180 degrees opposite. And that's what they were doing to the grace of God. These false teachers were suggesting that you have to do something besides simply believe in Jesus to be saved. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the law. And Paul says, if you add any works whatsoever to the gospel, it's no longer grace. Whatever is of works is not of grace. Whatever is of grace is not of works, Romans chapter 11 and Romans chapter 4. So the message of the gospel has not changed. It has not changed in 2,000 years. One of my mentors who went to be with the Lord just a few years ago took many classes from him my first time through seminary, had a relationship with him after that through the years, Dr. Stanley Toussaint. I actually had him uh, for uh, Acts and Pauline epistles. And uh, in fact, I think I've mentioned this before, but he's the one that I remember the first time I raised my hand and asked a question in class, he corrected me on my pronunciation of Pauline epistles. He said, young man, Pauline is my aunt. Pauline is a letter written by Paul. So I never forgot that. So it's the Pauline epistles, not the Pauline epistles. But uh, anyway, uh, he went to be with the Lord. But he said this one time, which I think is so profound. Men may bind the preachers, but the gospel can never be chained. And that's really the message of, of Acts, is that the message of the gospel has not changed. So the hope of Israel, the persecution of the church, the message of the gospel have not changed. Neither has, sadly, the hardness of the heart. Although some of those in Paul's presence there in that house believed the gospel, some did not. Some disbelieved. I don't know why anybody would not accept the free gift of salvation. I wrote a book a few years ago called The Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell and The One Reason No One Ever Has to. In it, I expound upon ten reasons that, in my experience, people reject the gospel. But that's just my anecdotal experience. But theologically, the answer is the hardness of the heart. Some of them disbelieved. To the Jews, the concept of the Messiah dying for their sins as an atoning sacrifice and the teaching that you can only be justified before a holy God by faith, that was a hard pill to swallow. They just didn't understand it. And it led them to crucify him in the first century. Now, they should have understood it. It was well documented in the prophets of old. Isaiah talked about the suffering servant. He was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. Daniel talked about how the Messiah was going to be cut off. They certainly saw Father Abraham believe God and be declared righteous based on nothing more than his 
faith. In fact, it was a couple decades after he was justified by faith before he really ever acted on his faith, according to the Genesis narrative. So they should have known, but they didn't. Some disbelieved, and so when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. And he quotes from Isaiah. He says, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers. And then he's going to really indict them uh, in just a moment. But Paul, in his letter to the Romans, expounds upon this hardness of the heart uh, in Israel. And I don't have this on the screen, but I want to pick up the context here before this passage in Romans 10. I quoted this earlier. Paul is talking here about Israel, and he says they've not all obeyed the gospel. That is, they've not all believed the gospel. And then he quotes Isaiah, Lord, who has believed our report? And then that's when he says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The problem wasn't that Israel hadn't heard the word of God. The problem was they didn't believe the word of God. And in chapter 9, at the end here of chapter 9, remember there were no chapter divisions in these letters. So it's really one continuous thought. And he's asking the question, what about Israel? And he brings up a point that any self-respecting Jew in that day would have wondered. He says, what shall we say then? What, are we, what am I saying here? Am I saying that Gentiles, these dirty, rotten, filthy Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, have somehow attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? And yet Israel, who pursued the law of righteousness, and later he says zealously, yet they have not attained to the law of righteousness? Is that what we're saying here? Why? Why did Israel not attain to the righteousness like Father Abraham did that commends them before a holy God? He answers the question in chapter 9, verse 32, because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. And that's exactly what Paul continued to say throughout all of his message. Every gospel message he gave is that you can't be saved by works, but only... Uh, by grace. So, uh, you know, the devil is hard at work blinding men's hearts to the gospel. The hardness of men's heart gets harder with each passing year. More and more tools in the devil's arsenal to convince people they don't need Jesus. Either there is no God, there is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no consequence for sin. That's Satan's biggest lie. That's the lie that he began with in the garden. What did he say? You will not die. You know, you can sin, Adam and Eve, and get away with it, no consequence. And he continues to tell that lie today. He's blinding men's hearts to the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, the message of the cross, the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing. They just don't get it. Their heart is too hard. But to those of us who believe, it is the power of God. Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If we go back to our text, Paul quotes to these unbelieving Jewish leaders, from Isaiah chapter 6 and a few other selected passages from the prophets, he says, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and you shall not understand. Seeing you will see and you shall not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn that I should heal them. The hardness of man's heart has not changed. He says in verse 28, which is really the probably the climax of the entire book of Acts, therefore, because you have rejected the gospel, some did believe, but the ones he's addressing now didn't. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. That's really a summary of the whole theme of the book. It starts out in chapter 1 with, you know, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Because the Gentiles will hear it. Having presented the gospel to the Jews in Rome, just like he did every other place that he went, and they rejected it, now he's going to turn his attention once again to the Gentiles. And by the way, until the times of the Gentiles have run their course, it will primarily be Jew, uh, Gentiles that are believers. There are some Jews today that have believed the gospel, absolutely, Messianic Jews. But by and large, the Jewish people have rejected the Messiah. Most believers today are non-Jews. They are uh, Gentiles. So Acts is basically a story about a mission. 
And, and Acts 28, 28 here is really the, 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 the mission continuing. They're going to hear it. I'm going to go to the Gentiles and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. So the question is, will you hear it? Will you hear it? If you're listening or watching right now on, on the computer or your smartphone, will you hear the gospel? And will you believe it? Will you believe the gospel message? The last thing that hasn't changed, not only the hope of Israel, the persecution of the church, the message of the gospel, and the hardness of men's hearts, the return of Christ. And the book of Acts finishes with this reference to the future kingdom of Christ. He says, Luke tells us in the final two verses of the book of Acts, Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence and no one forbidding him. Luke began Acts with one reference to the kingdom of God in verse 6. I think I said it was verse 11 earlier, but the disciples want to know, is the kingdom of God going to come now? Acts 1, 6. And then he ends the book of Acts with another reference to the kingdom of God. It's still coming, as we talked about. Christ will return. So what happened to Paul following the events recorded in Acts? Well, he stayed in Rome two years, as we see right here in verse 30. But then he was eventually released. He made some additional ministry journeys. This is attested by some early church fathers like Clement and Eusebius. And then while Paul was in Rome during this two-year period, he wrote uh, the prison epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. After his departure, he wrote the pastoral epistles during his final uh, journeys there. He was eventually arrested again, brought back to Rome. It was in Rome that he wrote 2 Timothy, his final letter, assuming he didn't write Hebrews, which would have written, been written about the same time as 2 Timothy. He wrote 2 Timothy shortly before his martyrdom uh, under Nero's reign in 68 AD. Early church leaders wrote that Paul was decapitated outside the city after being scourged in a Roman scourging, and he was buried in the catacombs beneath Rome. One scholar pointed out that in all of uh, after Paul was released from Rome and ended up back in Rome where he died, he traveled an additional 2,300 miles. Total tri miles traveled during Paul's entire ministry, over 13,000 as the crow flies. But the earnest expectation of Christ's return is something that kept Paul motivated through it all. He wanted to see people come to faith in Christ the same way he had, by believing the gospel. And he wanted to remind people that Christ is coming again. We could go through every one of his letters and see his references again and again to the return of Christ. The very first letter he wrote, the very first opening remarks, he says, Christ is going to come deliver us from this present evil age, a reference to Christ's return. The next letter that he wrote, 1 Thessalonians, he tells us about the rapture where the Lord himself will descend from heaven to rescue the church. In 1 Corinthians, later on, he talks about how we are eagerly awaiting for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back. In Romans, the letter he wrote to the people he was just speaking to in our text, he says, the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So we will know once and for all who's a believer and who's not. While in Rome, he writes the prison epistles. Here's one example from Philippians. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. What? From which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus, which he writes after he gets released from prison and during his final journeys before he gets arrested again and brought back to Rome. He says, we are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The very last letter that he wrote, he said to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, what, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Paul believed in the return of Christ. It's pervasive throughout his writings, and that has not changed. Christ will come back. So the mission continues. We talked about the hope of Israel has not changed. The, mess the persecution of the church has not changed. The gospel message has not changed. Sadly, the hardness of people's hearts has not changed. Certainly the hope of the return of Christ has not changed. But what's the takeaway? I think if we could summarize the entire teaching of the book of Acts, it would be the title of this message this morning, The Mission Continues. But the takeaway is this. Remember the mission. We're here for a purpose. You know, It may seem like we're knocking on the door of the end times, but until 
the trumpet sounds, we've got a job to do. Remember the mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for just for your love for us. Lord, in all of our inadequacies and failures and weaknesses, Lord, you show yourself strong again and again. Strengthen our faith. Teach us uh, to trust you. Help our unbelief, uh, Lord, and help us to just lean on you like never before. Lord, I pray if there's one here who's never taken that initial step of faith and trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, that today the urgency of the hour would pierce their hearts and they would recognize that today is the day of salvation and they would trust in Jesus for salvation. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.